Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 2. So if you're new with us, welcome and those watching online, maybe for the first time, welcome. And just to kind of catch you up to speed a little bit, this evening we find ourselves in the first main section of the book of Romans. This first section falls under the heading of condemnation, because in it Paul wants to prove that the whole world apart from Christ is condemned by God, which means at one point he will judge the world. And so that brought up a very important question that we looked at last time, just reviewing a little bit. If all people will someday face the judgment of God, what will be the criteria by which God will judge? Or in other words, on what basis will people be, be condemned and sent to hell? And on what basis will people be allowed to enter into heaven? Now, I believe that the basis for divine judgment is given to us by Paul in the first 16 verses of Romans 2. In the first 16 verses, Paul gives us six principles that become the basis for which God will judge all people. Here they are. Knowledge, truth, guilt, deeds, impartiality, and motives. We've already looked at the first three principles of God's coming judgment. And last week we started looking at number four, deeds. Let's read verses 5 and 6 again. For Paul says, But in accordance... With your hardness and the impenitent heart, your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. And again, reviewing quickly from last time, in both the Old and New Testaments, we are told that God will judge people on the basis of their deeds, their works both good and bad. Now, as we said last week, the whole point is to drive home to your understanding that God doesn't judge us on the basis of our, of our profession of faith, what we, what we say we believe. He judges us on the basis of the performance of our faith, how we live what we say we believe. Now, please, if you weren't here last week, we explained all this, because right now you're thinking, what? He's teaching salvation by works. Let's get out of here. No, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The works aren't a condition for attaining salvation. They are the evidence of a person having salvation. You see, our outward lifestyle, our works, is really the litmus test when it comes to true saving faith. As Jesus pointed out in Matthew 12, you will know the true from the false by the fruit produced in their lives. Now, I've got a lot of scriptures tonight. I won't have, to have you turn to all of them. I do want you to turn to Jeremiah 17, though. Some of these I'll just read to you. I'll have you turn to the others. So we're talking about God judging us, not based on what we say we believe, but how we live what we say we believe. This is the litmus test when it comes to true saving faith jeremiah 17 verse 10 
I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Look, God knows our hearts. God knows those who belong to him. Okay, he's not checking our lives out to see how we're doing in living what we say we believe. He knows those who belong to him. But he tells us to examine ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. Uh, this is all about us benefiting, being able to judge by the way we're living if we really know the Lord. But God says, look, I, I search the heart. I know the mind. Even to give every man, every person, according to his ways, according to the fruit of his what? His doings. Why does God frame it this way? Why doesn't God say, I know the heart, I test the hearts, I know them. I know if you got faith or you don't, and I, I'll judge you based on what I see in your heart. Well, he certainly is going to do that too. But he takes it one step further and says, look, you can't see what's planted in your heart. I can't tell if you've got saving faith in your heart. It's invisible. The only way I know in your life but especially in my life, if I'm really a Christian, is by what is being produced in my life. And this is what God is saying. You remember when John the Baptist, Matthew 3, was baptizing people down by the Jordan. And at one point the Pharisees came to be baptized. And he said to them, brood of vipers, who has, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, if you say you've really repented, let's see some evidence of that. Let's see some changes. Otherwise, it's just empty words, right? You have to turn to these next to Isaiah 3, verses 10 and 11. Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings, of their doings. They're doing good. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him. For the reward of his hands, his works, shall be given to him. So, God has said in his word, righteousness proceeds from the righteous and wickedness proceeds from the wicked. God said when he first created agriculture, he said everything will bring forth after its kind. Well, that also is true spiritually. Those who are redeemed will bring forth a new life. I mean, the Holy Spirit will do it through us, but you'll see the evidence of it. Those who are wicked still, they might go to church and profess to be Christians, but what's going to be evident in their life is the same old sins. Matthew 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Guys, the only issue that matters is, does the life of a person who professes to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, does their life manifest obedience to what God has said? Perfect obedience? Absolutely not. We're never going to be perfect this side of glory. But there definitely should be some changes, right? I mean, that, that just... Paul said to Titus, who was a pastor... You know, many profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Anybody can say, I know Jesus. I was raised in the church. I went to Awanas growing up, you know. I've always believed in Jesus. But by their works or by their lifestyle, 
There's no change. They're acting just like any unbeliever because guess what? They are an unbeliever. I mean, don't get me wrong. The real issue is still faith. We really covered that last week. It's just that the deeds of a person's life become the outward manifestation of what's really going on inside their heart. I can't see their faith. If it's in their heart, I can't see it. The only way I know it's there is by what is produced outwardly in the way of, is their life changed? Are, are, are they growing? Do they have a hunger for God's word? Do they want to be around, around God's people? Uh, is church an obligation or is it, it's not anymore, because I used to feel this way, I have to go to church. Then I got saved and I get to go to church. You know? If you're a born-again Christian, it's not, I have to read the Bible. No, I get to read the Bible. And so on. It's a whole different ballgame, right? And that's why Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. And so, guys, Paul in Romans 2, verse 6 is saying that God will judge us, not on the basis of what we say, what we profess, but on the basis of how we live, what is produced from our lives. Now, listen. So a lot of folks will say, well, yeah, my works are good. I'm a Christian. Why is that? I go to church. I light candles. I pray rosaries. I'm even a deacon. Come on. That proves I'm right with God. I'm one of his. No, not really, because that's not what God's looking for. I mean, periodically people have come up to me and said, how do I know I'm a Christian? And you try to talk to them and give them some, you know, like we just talked about. But here in this section in Romans, Paul actually lays out the qualities of a true child of God as opposed to the qualities of a phony Christian, somebody who professes to be a Christian but is not really a born-again believer in Christ. Going to church, being baptized, or even being a deacon isn't the deeds that God is looking for that determine whether a person is a true believer in Christ or not. How do we know? Well, what are the indicators? What are the characteristics? Well, in verses 7 to 10, Paul examines the deeds, the deeds that distinguish a true believer in Christ from those who are phony, false believers who claim they're in Christ. All right, first of all, let's start with the marks of a true believer. Verse 7, he talks about eternal life to those. So these are believers, obviously, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good Seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Four things Paul mentions here that indicate a person is truly born again. First of all, he says patient continuance in doing good. Look, in Ephesians 2, after Paul gets done saying in verses 8 and 9, we're saved by grace through faith. It isn't of us. It's a gift God gives to us, not a result of our good works. He moves right into verse 10 and says, look, we are his workmanship. The Greek word is poema. We get a word poem, but it's a Greek word that means masterpiece. We are his poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God ordained in eternity past that we should walk in them. There is no such thing as a Christian that God hasn't got plans for that God hasn't already in eternity past said, this is the life I want you to live, this is the ministry I want you to have, and so on. I mean, I think we can all attest to this, that before we got saved, we were going in one direction. 
And after, before we got, and then after we got saved, boy, did the Lord take us in a whole different direction. Well, that's called salvation. That's called being a new, a new creation in Christ, right? But here's the thing. Continuing in the faith is one of the marks of a genuine Christian. Guys, I have met people over the years that prayed the prayer of salvation, and wow, did they hit the ground running. They were at every church service. They were reading the Bible, you know, constantly, talking about, yeah, it was up till 3 in the morning reading the Word. Wow, that's pretty impressive, you know. T telling everybody about Jesus, got the 50-pound Schofield Bible under their arm, put uh, 150 bumper stickers all over the car. I mean, you, you knew this person was a Christian. And then after six months, eight months, they're gone. Well, maybe they were backslidden. Well, I don't know. I'm not on Facebook, but people that are on Facebook tell me, you know, so-and-so is on Facebook. It's all I ever see is him holding a beer now, partying with people. Could he be backslidden? Possibly. Or could he be an apostate? Somebody who looked good for a while, but then showed his true colors and walked away from the faith. You know, remember the parable of the sower? And Jesus talked about the seed that fell on shallow soil and it shot up real quick. But when the sun came up, it had no depth, no roots. It didn't go deep enough. And their young faith withered and died. That's what we're talking about. Jesus said in John 8, 31, If you abide, the Greek word is meno, continue. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples truly. Truly. Look. Continuing in the Bible, there are people that read the Bible that are liberal in their theology. They're not saved, but they're scholars. I, I was reading one guy I really love. He's a good, uh, godly guy, an author, and so on, pastor. And he said he had an opportunity to go to Germany, and he met with a group of uh, liberal theologians. Now, they don't believe in the virgin birth the bodily resurrection of Christ. I mean, these are unbelievers. He said, but I was taken aback by how they had memorized large portions of Scripture and could rattle it off. It was amazing. They knew the Word, but they had not received Jesus as their... I mean, they believed in a Jesus, but not our Jesus. Now, look, continuing in the Bible doesn't make you a Christian, but it does good evidence that you are one. For the most part. Remember what Jesus said in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. That's the knowledge of an intimate relationship when you're born again and you are made one with Christ. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they do what? Follow me. The Greek is they continue to follow me. Turn to Hebrews 10. Yeah, this one's a little sobering. Hebrews 10, pick it up in verse 35, where the writer says, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Jesus is coming. So hang in there. Keep running your race. Don't falter. Don't waver. Don't drop out. If you're genuine, you'll hang in there. Verse 38. 
now, now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, to hell, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. There are people in church. Churches are full of people. Depending on the church, most are saved. A few are not. Uh, if it's a very liberal church, nobody's saved. You might have one person there that wandered in off the street thinking this might be a good church. They might be saved. But we'll say in a good, solid evangelical church, you're going to have the true and you're going to have the those that are not born again. Jesus talked about the tares being sown among the wheat. Well, what should we do? Try to rip out the tares? No, no, no. Sometimes a person's a very new believer, still very carnal. You might label them a terror and to kick them out of the church. They need time to grow. It's not up to us to try to see the heart. But we have to notice what's going on in their lives. And we'll say they start living with somebody in the church, another person they brought to church. Well, that's not godly. We can't allow that. Second uh, Corinthians 5, the guy living with his stepmother, Paul says, look, you've got to put him out. You've got to discipline him. A little, a little leaven leavens the whole lump if not dealt with. You've got to ha have him leave. Let the devil beat up on him for a while, and maybe he'll come back repenting. Okay, great. And, and that guy did, by the way. The church put him out, disfellowshipped him for a little while, and he was broken, and he repented and came back. And Paul said, now embrace him real quick, because we don't want the devil to get in there. Okay? So, but sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes it's necessary. Um, but here, the writer is saying, look, if you're genuine, you're going to hang in there. It's tough. It's not always easy. But you need to buckle down and, and run your race with endurance. But those that draw back, in other words, walk away, well, it might just indicate that they were never born again. I'm convinced, he said, that you guys are not like the phonies who draw back uh, from Christ and walk back into the world. I, I'm convinced that you are those who believe to the saving of your soul. And I'll give you one more. This is the one I always quote on this subject. 1 John 2.19. Let me paraphrase. They went out from us, but they were never really one of us. If they had been one of us, they would have remained with us. But since they left our group, they left the church. And the idea is they left once and for all. It proves that they were never really genuine. Again, continuing in the faith, guys, is an evidence of true saving faith. True saving faith. Uh, that's the first one. What are the marks of a genuine believer? Well, first of all, uh, patient continuance in doing good. Living for Jesus. Secondly, they seek for glory. Wow. They seek for glory? Yeah. But not their own. They seek the glory of God, the glory of Jesus, right? Guys, another unmistakable mark of a true believer in Christ is someone who is always seeking um, the glory of God, not glory for themselves. Any so-called believer, I don't care if it's the pastor or his elders or whoever if they're always seeking glory from men 
That is a true indication this guy doesn't know the Lord. At very least, he's carnal, very carnal Christian. But a person who's a true believer has as his or her passion a desire to glorify God. Their life reflects Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's the heart of a spirit-filled Christian. Guys, what does it mean to glorify God? Some of these terms we read, we throw around, but if somebody asks us to, to define it, we might have a hard time, you know? First of all, what is God's glory? You know, I, I heard a pastor teach on this one time. Somebody came to him and said, Pastor, can you tell me what is God's glory? So I had to start thinking about that. You use some of these phrases so often you just assume everyone knows what you're talking about. If somebody comes up to you and asks you to define it, and you can't do it, you don't really understand it. So he started thinking and praying about it. And one day as he's walking into his office, he, uh, he said to his assistant, uh, it was a guy, he said, um, hey, what is the glory of God? I like your take on it. So, you know, half the day went by, the pastor got busy doing stuff. After lunch, the guy comes in and says, uh, puts a piece of paper on his desk. Pastor, what, what, what is this? Boy, answered your question. What is the glory of God? Pastor, i got to read this. Opens it up. Gave probably the best definition I've ever heard. He said, the glory of God is his eternal, intrinsic attributes. It's who he is. It's who, his eternal, intrinsic attributes. When we talk about us glorifying God, we are manifesting God's eternal, intrinsic attributes to this world. Didn't Jesus do that? Right? John 17, verse 4, he said, I have glorified you, Father, on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. Jesus came for two reasons. Jesus came to the earth for two reasons. The first one we understand, we all, to die for our sins, right? The second one, a lot of Christians have never thought about. They just think he came to die for our sins. Certainly he did. But there was another reason why he came. And that was to set the record straight from the twisted perception the Jewish people have gotten over the years in their relationship with God. Because they lived according to the law, which they always broke, they were always seeing the wrath side of God, the justice, the vengeance at times. And they, in their mind, got this idea that God was a fire-breathing, you know, red-eyed God that you had to, you know, he's always angry. Well, that wasn't true at all. But that's how they related to God. And so Jesus came to set the record straight, right? He came to show us what God was really like. And he did it by just manifesting the love of God, the grace of God. Yes, he hated sin. Uh, when they were selling uh, animals, you know, in the temple area and money changers, it was all a money-making ripoff. 
taking advantage of people that had come to worship God, making merchandise off of them, and Jesus got angry. It's okay to be angry when it's for the glory of God. Don't be angry because of yourself. But he got angry because God's glory, his Father's glory, was being dragged through the mud. And he took a, a, a whip and drove out the animals and overturned the mud. Well, he, he was throwing a little temper tantrum. Jesus never threw a temper tantrum. He manifested righteous indignation. But listen, Jesus came to, to bring glory to his Father, to God, by the way he lived. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time in his fullness, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has, and the Greek word means he declared him, but made him manifest. Nobody has seen God at any time in all his fullness. But God became man, dwelt among us, and showed us what God was really like. I'll give you one more. John 14, verses 8 and 9. Remember the night before the cross in the upper room. Philip said to him, Jesus, I'm going away. Where I'm going, you cannot come. I'll come back for you that where I am there, you might be also. And where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. And Philip said, I don't know. Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I am the way, Thomas, the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Philip said, well, show us the Father would we'll be satisfied. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Wouldn't that be great if we could all say that? Wouldn't it be great if we could all say, you know, Jesus was the word that became flesh. God who became a man. But wouldn't it be great to say, you know, the word has become flesh in my life. So that I only do those things that please my father. How great would it be to, to represent him so faithfully that if people want to know what God is like, well, look at my life because I try to always every day live in such a way that I please God, by how I live, that the world might know what he's really like. People have such weird, warped perceptions of God, right? Guys, listen, I believe it's possible for a person to be saved and still be preoccupied with themselves. A true believer seeks God's glory. But I do think it's possible for a person to be a relatively young Christian who is still very carnal. There are those that don't believe that there is such a thing as a carnal Christian. They th oh, that's just an unbeliever. You're calling him. Well, no, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, and then into chapter 3, Paul talks about three groups of people. He talks about the natural man, the unbeliever. He talks about the, um, the on-fire Christian, a, a believer, obviously. And then he talks about the carnal man, starting chapter 3. I wish I could speak to you as unto spiritual people, but I can't. You're carnal. You're babes in Christ. How do I know that? Because you're acting like mere men. You're fighting. Got divisions going on. Uh, I mean, how, how, how is this anything but acting like the world? Yet he called them brethren. He said all the gifts of the Holy Spirit were at work in their fellowship. They were saved. Yet they were still very carnal. It's possible to be a Christian and not really seek the glory of God because you're still seeking your own glory in so many ways. But 
It might be an evidence that you really have never received Christ. It's hard to walk the balance. One of my favorite old-time Baptist preachers, Vance Havner, used to say he felt it was his ministry to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. You know, he's trying to walk that balance, right? I mean, if a person claims to be a Christian but gets back into the world, are they backslidden or are they showing their true colors that were never saved? We don't know. We, we can't see into their heart. What I tell people is, look, I wouldn't assume you're a Christian. Your life right now is not reflecting that. There's no proof, really. So this would be a good time for you to examine yourself to make sure you're really in the faith. If a Christian backslides, the first thing they lose is their assurance. And they get very nervous. Well, they ought to. Why would God want you feeling good, peaceful, comfortable, if, you're walking away, if you've walked away from him? He's trying to get you to come back if you're really saved. You will eventually. But you don't know if you're really a Christian, if your life is not reflecting obedience. So you better be quick to examine your heart because, you know, you might be a backslidden Christian, but you might be an unbeliever who thinks he's a Christian and your life is now bearing out that you don't really know the Lord. That's a, that, so, we, so somebody who is not really seeking the glory of God might be a Christian still, but we don't know. But I know this. A spirit-filled believer in Jesus always desires to glorify God and not self. The third one he talks about is they seek for honor. True Christians seek for honor. Now, there's two kinds of honor. Honor that comes from the world or honor that comes from God. Guess what? True spiritual believers always want the honor that comes from God. You know, they could care less about what the world thinks of them. Uh, Jesus talked about how the Pharisees were always running around trying to get the accolades of people. Well, that's, that's a worldly person. They might wear a clerical collar or, or, and be a pastor of a church. But if they seek the approval of men, if they're always looking for honor from people, I would have to question their walk with God. Because when you're truly a spirit-filled believer, the only honor you want is the honor of God for doing all that he has commanded you to do. Uh, turn to John 5. Look, I get asked periodically, how do I know if I'm a Christian, blah, blah, blah. This is invaluable right here. Because Paul's talking, okay, well, here you go. Here's how you know if you're saved. And here are the qualities that reflect an unbeliever who thinks he's saved, or she thinks she's saved. So true believers seek for Seek for honor from God. Listen to what Jesus said, John 5, verse 22. He said, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, in this context, Jesus is saying to the religious leaders of Israel, who did not think he was Messiah, he kept saying he came from the Father, and they said he's got a demon. Okay? 
He is saying, look, if you don't honor me because the Father sent me, then the Father won't honor you. Why? Because you're not saved. And the verse that comes to mind, and there's so many, but John 8, 24. If you, Jesus said, if you don't believe that I am, he used the name of God there, I am, the great I am. If you don't believe that I am, God Almighty, you will die in your sins. Believing that Jesus is God who came to the earth is to honor him. And of course, you take it to the next step, which is to commit your life to him, where he's your master now. But then he went on to say in verse 38, but you didn't, he's talking to these Pharisees. You do not, you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You don't believe in me. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. The whole, the whole Bible, the volume of the book is written of me. The whole Bible is Jesus in print. The Bible is the word of God. Jesus is the word made flesh. You, you, you know, you Pharisees, you're always searching the scriptures. What does the Bible say about those who are always learning yet never able to come to the knowledge of the truth? Why? Because they come with preconceived ideas. They're not just reading the Bible and taking from it what God has obviously put here. They're reading into it. It's called eisegesis as opposed to exegesis. Exegesis is just taking from the Bible what God has put there. Eisegesis is reading into the Bible what you wanted to say. A lot of that going around today. But Jesus said in verse 40, but you are not willing, to, all the scriptures point to me. You search the scriptures daily, yet you refuse to come to me. Here I am. You refuse to come to me that I might give you this life you seek, eternal life. Verse 41, I do not receive honor from men. Jesus didn't care who these guys were. They were the religious big shots of Israel. Everybody, boy, you know, rabbi, rabbi, my, which means my great one, my teacher, but my great one. Jesus, you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the places in front at the feasts. You love the praise of men but you don't really seek the praise that comes from God. You don't honor me, therefore you don't honor my Father, even though you are looked upon as the religious of all religious men. In fact, the Jews had a saying, if only two people ever made it into heaven, one would be a Pharisee, the other would be a scribe, because they were the holiest of all people. But Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look all white and clean and pure and righteous. Inside, God sees what's going on in your heart, full of hypocrisy and defilement and so on. But verse, uh, verse 41, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you, you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. That's interesting. Who do you think that is? What's in the short term? Barabbas, whose name actually means son of the father. Bar, son of Abba, son of the father. Son of what father? Well, that's the, that's the thing, right? 
but ultimately it was a prophecy about the Antichrist. How he would come on the scene eventually, and the Jewish people initially would embrace him as their Messiah. But eventually they would be, when he set up his image in the Holy of Holies and demands to be worshipped as God, they would realize, we made a terrible mistake. Verse 44, how can you believe? Really, he said it like this, how can you believe? Who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. I'll just read you one more real quick. John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Guys, the ultimate honor we're looking for as Christians is the honor when we stand before God someday and he says to us, well done, good and faithful servants. You were faithful in what I gave you to do on the earth. Come into the joy now of your Lord in the kingdom. That's the only honor I want. The last one that is an indicator of a true believer. They seek for immortality. They seek for immortality. Of course, we all know 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53, talking about the rapture, where at one point, when the rapture occurs, this corruptible, this mortal body, must put on incorruption. Going to have a glorified new body that will never die and decay and so on. And this mortal will put on immortality. I don't know about you guys, but I'm really looking forward to that more and more. Because as Paul said, you know, the outward man is what? Perishing. The older I get, the more I say amen. Uh, it's Sometimes it's rough, you know, getting old and... Everything is creaking and cracking and I don't know. I'll leave it at that. You know what I'm talking about. You are older folks. I have you turn to 2 Timothy, okay? This is the last uh, appearance of Paul in Scripture, or the words of Paul, really. Right after he wrote 2 Timothy, they took him out and they executed Paul. They, they chopped his head off. But he was looking forward to it. I mean, <laughs> sounds a little weird. Uh, you know, I mean, he had run his race for many years. He was ready to go home. I've, I've heard godly saints who get cancer or something. Uh, we just had a, a godly pastor, well-known guy, uh, battled cancer for a few years, and now it was it was obvious he wasn't going to beat this unless God worked a total miracle which the Lord didn't but he said I'm ready to go be with Jesus I'm ready to see Jesus and there comes a point where it's like Lord thank you for allowing me to enjoy life on the earth and so much of it is enjoyable family marriage family you know having kids the grandkids serving the Lord but the devil's always on you he's always beating you up and after a while, 40, 50 years of that, it's like, Lord, I'm kind of ready. Now, if you want me to hang around a little longer, you got to do something. you got to infuse me with a little fresh, you know, some, some fresh genetics or something. It's interesting about Abraham. Remember how, you know, he was too old, him and Sarah, to have a child, and God said, you're going to have a child, and I'm too old, right? He was 75, she was 65. 25 years later now, he's 100, she's 90, and she bears Isaac, right? 
Well, after Sarah died, he had six. He married another gal, had six more kids. People think I think God actually revitalized his his body. Lord, can I can I have some of that? I know it wasn't the fountain of youth, but God did some to make this guy kind of virile again. But anyways, so Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I know my life is almost over. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Looking forward to another day past death, the day when he would stand before Jesus and get his rewards. Looking forward to standing before, they're going to they're gonna kill me soon. I, I understand that. I'm ready. I'm ready to stand also, though, before my Lord, the righteous judge, who will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but also, though also to all those who have loved his appearing, the crowns, our, our rewards. But again, Paul was seeking immortality. You know, he did say at one point, you know, I'm pressed between a rock and a hard place. You know, I, to depart and be with Jesus is so much better, but I'm willing to stay here if I can help you guys walk with him a little longer. But if his heart was, I want to go home. You know, a true Christian, spirit-filled, they're not um, fatalists. They don't, they don't glorify death, but they're not afraid of it. And it's, the idea is that a true spirit-filled Christian will live their life on the earth for the Lord is to the fullest. But this is not where they want to be. It's like we sang tonight. This is not our home. In fact, we're going to look at that in just a second. But a true believer is one who sees him or herself as a stranger and pilgrim in the world. Phony believers live for this life. Spirit-filled believers always live for the life to come. Turn to Hebrews 11. just want to read verses 13 to 16. So obviously Hebrews 11 is one of the greatest chapters in the New Testament. It's called the Hall of Faith because it showcases some of the great examples of faith throughout the Bible. And after he gets, he's talking about these believers that lived these incredible lives for God. And many of them were martyred. He said in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises. They never saw heaven, or the kingdom, I should say. Um, they were given the promises of a coming kingdom and Messiah returning to establish his kingdom, but they never saw it. They died with the faith in their heart. It was going to someday be a reality. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had... Uh, called to mind that country from which they had come out of, come out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, some of them were exiled from Israel. You know, the um, Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity. 
Paul's, uh, I, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, he, Paul's saying, it's not that they wanted to go back to Israel, although they did, but they had another homeland in mind. Uh, verse 16, but now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Yes, it's called the New Jerusalem. Guys, let me, and we're, we're done. Let me, we'll have to end it with this point. But let me sum up the marks of a true believer in one statement. Are you ready? His or her perspective is heavenly. That's all I can say. I can sum up all this in one statement. The greatest mark or evidence of a true believer is that his or her perspective is heavenly. Quickly, turn to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. We'll read verses 16 to 18. Hey, it's tough here on the earth, Paul is saying. Not easy. It's a lot of tribulation, a lot of persecution. But we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed day, every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. This life on earth, it's not very long compared to eternity, obviously. Yet, so our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them, all these adversities, the glory that waits us in heaven, will far outweigh whatever we struggle with on earth. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now, they will soon be gone. They're temporal. But the things we cannot see, the things of heaven, well, they're going to last forever because they're eternal. Again, guys, a true child of God lives not for the temporal, they live for the eternal. He or she does what Paul admonished in Colossians 3, verse 2, when he says, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Jesus put it this way, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves can break through and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where you'll never get ripped off, and they'll be waiting for you when you get there. And to me, that's one of the big differences between a phony believer and, and even a carnal Christian. But we're talking about phony Christians compared to true Christians. Marks of a true Christian. They live for the eternal. They live for what is unseen, what's immortal. They don't live for the temporal. Whereas those who call themselves Christians, but are really not, their whole deal is laying up for themselves treasures on earth. Because that's all they really know. That's why their heart's not in heaven. Because they're not seated with Christ in heavenly places. They're still creatures of the earth. Verse 10 corresponds with verse 7. I'll read verse 7 one more time. Talking about those who are true believers. Eternal life to those who, by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Verse 10, he talks about them again. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, true believers, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, people read that and they go, well, gee, uh, is that saying that God favors the Jews? Uh, no, one commentator points this out and we'll, I'll read it real close. He said the expression to the Jew first and also to the Greek cannot indicate favoritism because the next verse points out that God's judgment is impartial. So the expression must indicate 
the historical order in which the gospel went out, as it says in chapter 1, verse 16. It was proclaimed first to the Jews, who were the first believers in Jesus, and then it went to the Gentiles. So, you know, when Paul says, look, to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, it doesn't mean that God loves Israel more or the Jewish people more than the Gentiles. God loves us all. But he chose the Jews to be the instrument through which he would give his word, redeem this nation, made them his special people, and they were going to be his representatives. They were going to you know, be a light in the darkness and so on. But God always said, someday, though, you're going to be a light to the Gentiles. E even way back when God first called Abram before he was even Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 3. He said, that's in you, that is in your seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. The tragedy was the Jewish people began to think at one point that God only loved them. And the rabbis even taught God only created the Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. They're, they're irredeemable. Basket of deplorables. Where have I heard that? <laughs> heard that somewhere. Um, but God loves all people. In fact, in the New Covenant, God took believing Jews, believing Gentiles, and made them one new man in the body of Christ. We're, we're one together. And so, all right, those were the marks of a true believer. Next week, God willing, we'll pick it up looking at, quickly, won't spend all night on it, looking at the marks of a false believer. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us, Lord. I, I just, people say, well, how do I know I'm really saved? Well, you've given us four incredible reasons or things to look for in our lives that will indicate that, that we're truly born again. And Lord, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in this incredible book for your glory and for our learning that we may grow deeper and know you more fully. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.